Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. First Peter chapter two. We will pick up in verse eleven today. That's where we left off last week. group of people cornered Jesus one day. They asked him, do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? They hated the tax system in their day, rightfully so, way worse than any taxes you've ever had to pay. Um, The Roman Empire would treat their um, constituents very harshly and charge them taxes to do so. Um, And they would, um, the Jewish people would become tax collectors to collect the money for them to continue to do that. The Jewish people hated the tax system and hated tax collectors. So they asked Jesus, do we have to pay taxes? They're expecting Jesus to respond, not no, 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 you don't. You don't have to pay taxes. Rebel, resist authority. Go in there and tell them what you think. That's not what he says. He simply asks a question. He says, hey, give me a coin. Let me see a coin. So they give it to him. He looks at it. They say, whose face is on this coin? He says, whose face is this? And they say, it's Caesar's. He says, okay, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God's. What's he tell them? Pay your taxes. Just do it. Just pay it. The Bible presents a radical view of how Christians are to interact with the government and the culture they live in. It may even be the opposite of what what some of you think. But if the Bible never upsets you and you never disagree with what it says, you're probably reading it wrong. We live in a day when authority is not looked upon highly. No form of authority is looked upon highly today. Everybody questions authority. Everybody's very skeptical of anybody in any authoritative position. You see it in the distrust of the police force. You see it with pastors. A hundred years ago, pastors were the most educated, most respected man in the community. Today, everyone is skeptical of pastors. There's a distrust toward pastors because a lot of sketchy people have given pastors a bad name. You see it in how no matter who is elected president, people are going to question them and criticize them. In 2016, Donald Trump won the presidential election over Hillary Clinton, but there was a lot of questions of a possible election fraud that occurred. Um, to the point that some people on the left began a movement on social media called Not My President. Donald Trump is hashtag Not My President. And a lot of people on the other side of things said, what's wrong with all those people? Don't they know you're supposed to respect the president even if you don't like him? In 2020, Joe Biden won the presidential election over Donald Trump, but there was a lot of questions of election fraud in the midst of it. Thus, all those right-leaning people started a movement. Joe Biden is Not My President. 
And I'm over here shaking my head like y'all were just criticizing this four years ago. Authority of any kind is questioned in our day. This is part of our sin nature. We do this without even knowing that we're not supposed to do this. Nobody has to teach us to not want to obey authority. We just do it naturally. So my son has learned a new trick of how to take off his own diaper. So he's on the changing table. I strap him closed. He grabs it and pulls it off. And I say, Haddon, strap it back. Don't do that. Don't, don't take your diaper off. And he looks at me. Nobody teaches us to do this. It's part of our sin nature. He's a little sinner. I love him. He's the most ball of fun of joy that I've ever had. But he's also a sinner. He's also cursed by the fall. But the Bible calls Christians to a different way of relating to authority. A different way of living in a culture where they are exiles. Even though we are exiles in this world, Christians are still citizens of the geographical, political nations they live in. So how does the Bible call Christians to live in those places? Last week we talked about the fact that as Christians we're citizens of a new country. Today we talk about how we are citizens of this country. So 1 Peter 2, 11. <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you, put, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter gives these Christians three things to do on how to live in a, in a culture that is against them. Um, he, verse 11, he says to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Verse 12, he says to live a beautiful life among them. And 13 through 17, submit to authority. Those are the three things we're going to talk about. First of all, verse 11, we abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. We live in a nation of sinful passions of the flesh, don't we? just all kinds of them. Let me just give you a few. Um, the first is um, sexual sin. God created sex as a very good thing. Our culture has turned it profane to the point that today a person's value and worth is found in their sexuality. Think of the fact that if you had never heard of this movie that I'm about to name and had no knowledge of what it was about, would there be any question that the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin is a comedy? Would there be any question of that? No, of course not, because our culture can't imagine a person being complete if they're still a virgin at 40. They say you're not a complete human if you aren't experiencing romantic love and sexuality. That's ridiculous. The most complete human being who ever walked the earth was a single virgin. His name was Jesus. When it's put forth that your sexuality is what makes you human, people feast on it because they need it to survive. Next, the sinful passion to always need to be entertained. Always need to be entertained. 
What do I mean by that? Simply watch around you the next time you're in line at the grocery store and ask, how many people are on their cell phones? How many people are on their cell phones? And that'll answer your question of what I mean. Our culture simply knows nothing of how to be bored, of how to be quiet, to be still. If they have even 15 seconds of free time, they've got to go and check their Facebook to see if anything new is on there. It's not making them any happier. It, we, we, we just don't know what to do otherwise. What do we do when we just got to stand there and wait? For most people, their iPhone might as well be an appendage to their body because it's in their hand more than it's not. We don't see this as passions of the flesh because it doesn't feel sinful. You know, um, you know using narcotics and, and you, know, you know, going to prostitutes, that feels sinful. Wasting an entire weekend um, watching a whole season of Grey's Anatomy doesn't feel sinful. So we wouldn't think it's wrong, but it's wasting our life. Spending six hours of time over the course of a day on Facebook doesn't feel sinful, but it's detrimental to you. It just is. Science proves it's making you more depressed. It just is. You claim you have no time to pray and study God's word, but your social media habits say otherwise. It, it has made also you unable to meditate on anything. There's a new app. Um, I don't have this one. It's a social media app that... Um, a lot of people are using these days called TikTok. TikTok. What TikTok is, is, is you get on there and there's a video that plays for 10 seconds and it immediately jumps to the next one. Then it immediately jumps to the next one. Immediately jumps to the next one. And I just know myself, if I were using that, I wouldn't know how to meditate on anything because it's constantly a new thing over and over and over. Just, you know, I can't even focus on what I just saw and comprehend it. That will mentally train you to not be able to focus on a passage of God's word and really understand it at all. Next is vanity. Vanity. A passion of the flesh today. Vanity. It's, a, uh, it's an obsession in our culture of how we look. It's the man who spends every day at the gym trying to make himself look more muscular, pumping himself full of protein powder, just hoping it's going to make him bigger because he thinks that that's the only way he, he'll ever be awesome is to have big muscles. Coming from someone who in high school thought that very thing, trust me, it, it doesn't fulfill you. I used to walk around my high school with my chest pumped out. I looked like a moron when I did it, but I thought, okay, it's going to make me look big and all the girls are going to like me. Never got a single girl from pumping my chest out, never. And the fact is, you're going to lose that one day. Someday, you're not going to be able to bench press 350 anymore. You're just not. Someday your six-pack is going to be gone. Christ has more for you than to be muscular. Be healthy, but don't find your value in it. It's also the woman who is so subconscious about her appearance that the slightest wrinkle or the slightest bit of weight added makes her hate herself. She buys more and more clothes, more and more makeup to make herself look more beautiful because she's just convinced that that's where her value lies. If she doesn't look like the supermodels in the magazine, she has to starve herself so she can lose weight. She can't be in a bathing suit at the beach if she's going to have any slight roll on her body. Women, your value is not in your physical appearance, and it never will be. It never will be. No matter how much makeup and clothes you buy, you're going to get old, and your physical beauty is going to fade eventually. It is. True beauty is found not in, your, not in your face, not in your body. It's found in devoting yourself to Christ and loving him. Proverbs 31 says that beauty is vain and fleeting, but the woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. 
Christ sees beauty in you, not based on your weight, not based on your youth, but based on your soul. He has such value for you. So stop listening to the lies of the world that tell you that your physical beauty is where you're, is where you're valuable. Next, this is the last one, speaking evil of people. It's a passion of the flesh in our culture. It's the spirit of our day because it's just so juicy. It's just so juicy to speak evil of people. It just feels so good to go online and start posting stuff about how terrible other people are. It just feels so good. It makes you feel like you're changing the world. The problem is, you start by complaining about Kamala Harris, and it spills over and you're complaining about your neighbor and your friend and your spouse. It corrupts your heart to do that. And you don't realize all the time that you're speaking bad of someone how much you're being corrupted, but it's turning you into a fountain of malice and slander. It just is. Rather, listen to Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What does Peter say to do about these passions of the flesh? He says to abstain from them. Abstain from them, verse 11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't participate, he says. Don't go near them. It's not a thing of use them in moderation. He says abstain from them. Notice, all the things I named are not, sin, not necessarily the thing itself is sinful. There's sinful patterns behind it. We abstain from those sinful patterns. For example, there's nothing wrong with exercising to stay in shape. Um, there's nothing wrong with trying to not be overweight. The question comes at, are you doing it because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you want to glorify God with your body? Or are you doing it because you find value in looking good in a bathing suit? One is glorifying to God. One is glorifying to yourself and the passions of your flesh. There's nothing wrong with watching TV, using social media, or having an iPhone. I do all those things. But are you using those things with a purpose? Or are you just vegging out to pass the time? One is glorifying to God. One is feeding the passions of your flesh. So, for example, I have a rule for, for our household um, we watch through TV shows on, on streaming services. Our general rule is we watch one episode of a TV show a day, and that's it. That's it. We love good fictional stories because ultimately every story somehow points to the truth of God's story revealed in his word. Um, but we will not be vegetables in front of a TV wasting our lives. Sometimes I'll allow us to watch a second episode, but rare circumstances. Sometimes people ask me, Aaron, how do you read so many books in a year? Well, the fact is, if you're not a slave to your TV or a cell phone, you can read a lot of books. Have checks and balances for these things. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why do we do this? Look at the second half of verse 11. They wage war against your soul. They literally want to destroy you. They want to shred you to pieces. The spirit of our age tells women that they aren't valuable if they don't look, look like Carrie Underwood. It's just waging war to devour them. That's all it's doing. It's telling them what is not true. Christ sees them as valuable. The spirit of the age says it's okay to waste your life scrolling Twitter just to blow off some steam. It's not helpful, though. We declare war and abstain from these things. Secondly, verse 12, we live beautiful lives, beautiful lives. Among the lost world, we live an honorable life. The Greek word there for, um, for, for honorable, um, it's, it's not the typical word that you would think of. Um, 
referring to good and righteous. Um, the, the Greek word um, for good and righteous is agathos. That's where we get the word, the name agatha, good, righteous. That's not the word being used here like it would normally be used. It's the word kalos, kalos. You don't have to know all that, but, but the point is kalos means beautiful. It's not saying good and righteous. It's saying live a beautiful, honorable life. What's the difference in good and beautiful? Well, it's great that you don't smoke and drink, but my question is, do people look at your life and think Christ is beautiful from it? Uh, you know, I, I look at beautiful things and I can't look away. I stare at beautiful things and I can't look away. I look at a sunset, it's beautiful, I can't stop looking at it. I look at the night sky, I look at a waterfall, I look at you know, my son's laugh, I look at those things, I don't want to look away because they're beautiful. Living a beautiful life is where you live, not just good morally, but so joy-filled, so generous, so sacrificial, so Christ-centered that people can't look away because of how beautiful your life is. Have you ever known people like that? Have you ever known people like that? There's this concept in Scripture that Christians are to carry out called being above reproach, being above reproach, so that if they speak evil against you, they have nothing to say, it says in verse 12. Be above reproach. We're not home in this world. We're not home in this world. They're going to speak evil against us. It doesn't matter what we do. If you remain faithful to Christ in this world, you will be spoken evil against. Plenty of people are willing to compromise what Christ has said to not have hatred from the world. But you want to live your life above reproach, devoted to him. Even if they speak bad against you, they've got nothing bad to say. That means there's nothing hidden behind closed doors in your life that they could dig up and have evidence against you. If they are going to speak evil against you, give them no reason to do so. Here's a good question for yourself to think. Is there something in your life that if you were running for public office and the media uncovered it, you would have no chance of winning that election? Is there something in your life that if they uncovered it, you would have no chance of winning public office? If there is, you're not above reproach. You're not above reproach. Go home today, figure out what that is, and put an end to that thing. Come talk to me, I'll help you. That's why I exist as a pastor, to shepherd your soul. Make war against that thing. We're called to live a beautiful life that nothing bad could ever be said about us. Why? Into verse 12. That they will glorify God on the day of visitation. That they will glorify God. On, what does that mean? Well, I think it's referring to the day Jesus returns, they will glorify God. Not that they are unbelievers when Jesus comes. That is, we've lived such a beautiful life that they've come to know Jesus by seeing who we are and wanting the same Jesus. They've come to him. Simply this, your conduct of life changed their life. Changed their life. They saw that there was something to this Jesus and they wanted to follow him all because your beautiful life above reproach led them to that. And they sought out answers to why. Look down at 1 Peter 3.15. We'll hit this in a few weeks. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So live your life in such a way that you're wholly committed to Christ so that people will ask why you have the hope that you do. Why you have the hope that you do. We abstain from passions of the flesh we live a beautiful life. And thirdly, verses 13 through 17, we submit to authority. We submit to authority. Peter, Peter uses the word be subject there. 
if you kind of scan down through First Peter, you'll see that phrase pop up multiple times. Um, you'll see it here in verse 13. You see it in verse 18, servants be subject to your masters. You'll see it in verse chapter 3, verse 1, wives be subject to your own husbands. We'll hit each of those. He's beginning a section of what it looks like to um, obey authority, to submit to authority. Peter says, be subject to every human institution. Why does he say that? Why does he call them a human institution? Well, understand the culture these Christians lived in and the culture I would say we live in. Caesar was viewed as God among man. He was viewed as a God. Emperor worship was the religion of the land. The Romans didn't care if you worshiped Jesus. You just had to worship Caesar as well. You had to put Caesar up as king of kings and lord of lords. Christians were not persecuted for worshiping Jesus. They were persecuted for worshiping Caesar, for not worshiping Caesar. They were persecuted for, re for refusing to worship the emperor. Peter is telling them from the beginning, these are human institutions. They're not divine institutions. So the question is, do we submit to the government in everything? Do we submit to human institutions in everything? And I say no. We submit as far as they are human institutions. If they start trying to make divine edicts, we don't submit to that. If they start making decrees that violate God's word, we don't submit to that. We can't submit to that. This is not what you think, though. You know, if they violate God's word, we don't submit to that. If they violate your opinion, we submit to that. If they make a law that says, I can't preach from the Bible, that's illegal, I break that law. If they raise your taxes higher than you want to pay, you pay your taxes. That, that's how this works. We only practice civil disobedience when it directly violates what Scripture says, not just what we don't like. We submit, notice, no matter who they are. Peter says, whether it's to the emperor or to governors uh, or, or to any of those, the emperor or the governor, those are two levels of institution in the Roman Empire. There was one emperor, there were multiple governors. Governors were sent to different regions to do the work of the emperor. There was one emperor in Rome, um, he would send out governors to govern each part of the kingdom and each part of the world because he obviously can't do it all without, without the technology that we have today. So in the story of Jesus, Pilate is a governor. He's sent by Caesar to be the leader of the Judean uh, region. Um, he's sent there for that. We submit to all authority, whether high, up, or low. We submit no matter who they are. The emperor was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. He expected society to worship him. He carried out crucifixions for anyone who protested the terrible things Rome was doing in the world. That is, if you tried to stop, a, if you tried to start an oppression, it, let, me, let me rephrase that. If you tried to stop oppression that was happening in the Roman Empire, you were stripped naked and nailed to a tree. That's who the emperor was. Peter says, submit to him. Submit to him. This is important in our highly politicized culture in 21st century America. We submit to the governance of leaders that we disagree with. We do that. We don't just sit around and mock them all the time. We submit to them. We desire their good. What do we gain if Joe Biden fails as president? The only harm that anyone receives from that is us. The rich politicians in Washington are going to be fine if they fail. We're not. We submit to the government because God has set up the government. Look at verse um, 14. They are sent by God. Well, I'm sorry, sent by him. Governors are sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. Scripture's clear, not, 
I almost misquoted that verse, but, but Scripture's clear all over the place. God sets up the government. Romans 13, look at that later. God sets up government. He established government for societal order. He established it to punish evil and to praise good. To punish evil, to reward good. So that evil receives due punishment and is brought to an end, and so that good is upheld so society should function. Why isn't that what government does then? Why is it so often the opposite? They praise evil, they, they punish good. Why, why is that what it seems like? Because we live in a sinful world where government is corrupt, just like everything, just like your heart is corrupt. So we, of course, strive for a government that carries out its proper purpose. In America, we have a privilege that Peter's readers didn't have. We elect our leaders. They didn't. The, the emperor came down the line of descendants. Verse 15, look at this. It is God's will that you obey and be subject to those leaders. It's God's will that you obey authority because he set it up. He set it up. He created it. And he, the, he is the one who ultimately elects the leaders. Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. That is, every king that has ever taken throne, God's the one who put them there. He put them there. God has been the deciding vote in every presidential election in history. He chose every governor, every senator, every representative, every mayor, and even something seemingly as small as a PTA president. He's sovereign over it all. It does not escape him. He's over all of this. We submit to and honor this kind of authority. Verse 13 says, be subject. Verse 17 says, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Really honor this guy? The guy who crucifies people if they don't worship him as God, honor that guy? What? Yes, honor him because he is the authority God has set up. But there's a difference, do you see? Verse 17, fear God, honor the emperor. There's two distinctions there. Fear God, honor the emperor. In other words, honor him, do not worship him. Honor him, do not worship him. Christians were persecuted in this day because they said, we will honor Caesar as our governing leader. We will not worship him as God. We will not do that. Is it just governing authority, though? No. We submit to and honor all authority. We submit to and honor the police force. We submit to and honor our boss at work who has authority over us. We submit to and honor those signs on the road that we often ignore that say, speed limit on them. We submit to and honor the laws of our land. We don't disobey them. If we do, God has set up government to punish that evil. So how do we honor authority? How do we honor governing authority? Um, let me give you a few ways um, to, to honor governing authority. The first of all is don't worship them. Don't worship them. You have no God but Jesus. Worship him alone. Don't worship the president or the governor or the police or any such thing. They are not your savior. They are not. Secondly, trust authority. Our age completely distrusts authority. Anybody in authority is immediately suspicious. We lead the way as Christians in obeying this passage and trusting those in authority. We don't assume that they have skeletons in their closet just because we saw something on Facebook. Thirdly, pray for them. Pray for them. We read that passage earlier, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You should regularly pray for our governing leaders. Like, really pray for them. Have you ever prayed for our governing leaders by name? Not just generically called them our leaders. Have you ever prayed for Joe Biden? Have you ever prayed for um, Raphael Warnock? 
You ever prayed for Julie Smith, for, um, for um, Brian Kemp? You ever prayed for Nancy Pelosi? There's a reason I do that in our worship services. Scripture commands me to. It tells me to. Pray specific prayers for them. Don't pray generic prayers for them. Don't pray, Lord, I pray for our leaders that they would look to you. Like, what, what leaders are you talking about when you pray that? Because if you're talking about the governing officials who don't know Jesus, they can't look to God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The unbelievers of this world cannot look to God because their eyes are blinded by the devil. They don't have the ability to look to him. Pray that the veil would be lifted. Pray for their salvation. Pray for Joe Biden's salvation, for Kamala Harris's salvation, for Nancy Pelosi's salvation. If you refuse to do this, it shows you're more fueled by politics than you are by Jesus. He wants them saved. He wants them to know him. Pray for wisdom as they lead us. Pray for the will of our leaders to be in the hand of the, uh, of the Lord, no matter who they are and no matter how much they refuse him. Pray for their good and pray that they would flourish. Finally, keep the gospel front and center. That's how you honor our leaders. The worst thing you can do for our leaders is think they are ultimately the saviors of our land. They're not. Donald Trump is not the Messiah. He's not. There is only one name under heaven by which people must be saved, and he's not American. He's not American. He's the risen from the dead Israeli son of God. That, that's who he is. When man needed salvation, God did not give us an elephant or a donkey. He gave us a lamb. He gave us a lamb. Governing leaders are not your savior. Christ is. Christ has come to be our savior. Keep the gospel front and center. The only hope for the removal, for the renewal of this world is the preaching of the gospel. Everything else tries to renew the world. It's working to pluck fruit off of a dying tree. You, you pluck fruit off a dying tree, the dying tree is still there. Dying trees are going to have rotten fruit. They are. The gospel takes the tree and cuts it down and plants a new tree there. That's what it does. The gospel is we're sinners. Christ has come and died for us. He's paid the penalty for our death. He's died so that we don't have to. He's risen again. He's defeated death. He now sits at the right hand of God, reigning as king. And ultimately, this is our only hope. We don't put our hope in elected leaders. We put our hope in a risen Savior, in the gospel. So I ask you this morning, have you placed your hope in that gospel? Have you? Uh, not just if you know Jesus or not, not just if you're saved. Are you placing your hope in the gospel right this second in the fear that you're having, in the um, anxiety that you're having? I'm asking myself that as well. In the frustration that you're having, in the um, sin that you keep falling into, is the gospel your hope? Is it your hope? I'm not asking if you walked an aisle at some point. I'm not asking if at some point you ask the Lord to forgive you for where, he, he, for where you had failed him. I'm not asking if you're a law-abiding citizen. I'm not asking if you're a member of this church. I'm asking, is the death and resurrection of Christ what your salvation and hope are based on? When you die and you get to heaven, are you going to tell God, I can come in because I prayed a prayer at some point in the front of Mount Zion? Or I can come in because I've been baptized, because I was a member of a church? I can come in because I was a good person, better than most. I can come in because I voted for the right people. The only answer you can possibly give when you get there is, 
I can't come in. I'm not worthy, but Jesus died my death and rose again so that I can come in. It was him. Is that how you see your salvation, both when you first got saved and now every day of your life? Because that is your only hope. That is your only hope. Your hope is not in the White House. Your hope is in the gospel. If you don't have hope in the gospel, today's the day for salvation. Call on the name of Jesus, and he will save you. We're going to have a time of response here in just a second. Is the gospel your hope? Not just did you receive Christ at some point. I know most of you have. But is, is the gospel what you're hoping in to get you through this day? to get you through what you're wrestling with, to get you through the um, hard time in life that you're in? Is the gospel your hope in the midst of a COVID spike? Is it? I hope it is. Now's your time to respond. Caleb's going to come. I'm going to pray. Then you're going to have a time to respond. Father, governing officials are not our hope. Lord, you've put them there for societal good, but you've not put them there to be our Messiah. Jesus alone is that. Lord, we live in a culture that um, loves sinful passions, loves passions of the flesh that waves, wages war against them. They run to things that wage war against who they are. Lord, may we live beautiful lives in the midst of that. May we live such a life different from those passions of the flesh that people look at us and say, what hope do you have? And we can tell them Jesus and his death and resurrection. Lord, may that be our hope to carry us through today, tomorrow, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.